0: Okay, today's reading is Romans seven. So that's on uh, page seven. I got it up there, seven thirty on the red Bibles. Since I am speaking to those who understand law, brothers, are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she gives herself to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she gives herself to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the messiah so that you may belong to another to him who was raised from the dead that we may bear f- fruit for god for when we were in the flesh the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death but now we have been released from that law from the law since we have died to what is held what has held us, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, "'produced in me coveting of every kind. "'For apart from the law, sin is dead. "'Once I was alive apart from the law, "'but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. "'The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. "'For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, "'deceived me, through it it killed me. "'So then, the law is holy.' and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognised as sin, was was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am made out of flesh, sold in the sin's power. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, no, So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it's the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this principle. When I want to do What is good, evil is there with me, for in my inner self I joyfully agree with God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin.
1: Hey, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is available to all, uh, and I thank you that we can look at the book of Romans and see what you have to say to us. Um, yeah, please use the words that uh, yeah come out now to glorify you, uh, and that... Yeah, he will speak to us through this chapter. Amen. All right, so what I want you guys to do, I'm going to put this yellow ball on here, right? And you can look at it as much as you want at it right now, but in three seconds, you can't look at it until I tell you you can look at it again, all right? Look at it, take it in. Three, two, one. Don't look at the ball anymore. <laughs> So far uh, in his letter to the church at Rome, Paul's reminded humanity that God's anger is coming against us, that his judgment is coming against humanity because we've chosen to reject him as king. Uh, And instead, we want to put ourselves in his place, deciding what we want to do with our lives. We don't care what God has to say about how we should live our lives, uh, and we decide on the things that we do. And Paul says that because of this, God's judgment is coming against all humanity, and all of us stand guilty without excuse. Uh, So whether you're young or old, whether you're black or white, whether you're a Christian or a Muslim, all of us stand guilty in front of God. We've all chose to reject Him. Uh, And in these opening chapters, uh, Paul wants us to feel this sense of hopelessness. The situation that we're in is hopeless because we've all chosen to reject God. But then we get to chapter 3 where we hear probably the most amazing news that's ever been declared to mankind. By his grace, God gives gives us his righteousness through Jesus. Through what Jesus did on the cross, God now declares those that put their trust in Jesus as righteous. That through his death and through his resurrection, we're we're justified. Just as if we never sinned. Just as if we had never rejected God. Uh, and that's what we were reminded about at Easter, that Jesus took, the, took our place on the cross, uh, that he paid the price that, uh, for our sin. Uh, and so the punishment that we deserve is all on him now. And we're free. We're set free to go into God's presence. And therefore, we see three things. We see that those that put their trust in Jesus, they're given a new status, right? They're made right with God and they're forgiven. Uh, They become a new people. Now we're included in God's chosen people uh, and we look forward to a new future where our lives will be transformed to become more like Jesus. Uh, So as we heard uh, last week from Greg in in chapter six, this new reality should reshape every part of our lives. Paul is saying that just because we're saved by grace, it doesn't mean that we can just continue doing whatever we want to do just live our lives the way how we used to live it before. He used that illustration of baptism where we've died to Christ, we've died to our old nature, and then as Christ rose again, we also rise again as a new creation. See, when we become a Christians, our lives are transformed. The person who didn't care about what God had to say before now cares about what he has to say. We're headed in a new direction. Now Greg was doing the jumping thing, looking that way and that way. I'm not going to jump, but we are now headed in a new direction uh, because of what Jesus has done. Our old self that was headed towards death and destruction, uh, uh, we, were, we were headed towards death and destruction, but now our new life in Christ means that we're headed towards eternal life with him. Right? And Paul is saying that why, after being saved from this terrible future, why would you want to turn back to it? Why would you want to continue heading towards destruction? Being saved by grace means that our lives will be transformed. All right? Now remember, don't look at the yellow ball. Uh, which brings us to the beginning of chapter 7, where Paul continues this argument uh, that just because we're saved by grace, it doesn't mean that we can continue to do whatever we want. Uh, and now he uses the illustration of marriage. Uh, and Paul says that being married to the law, it's like trying to please a spouse who you can never, who you can never please. So no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to meet their standards, uh, you're met with a list of things that you can never do. It was impossible for us to keep the law. Uh, But now that we've died to the law, just like when your wife or husband, or if you had a wife or husband that died, um, you're no longer married to them. It's still death, death do us part, death do you part, right? So you're no longer married to that person and you're free to go and marry as you choose. Uh, so when we die to the Lord and now are married to Christ, we're now met with love and grace. It's no more about the rules. It's no more about you have to meet all my demands in order for me to love you. Right? Jesus meets us with grace and love. He says that it's okay when you stuff up. I've done it all. Try again. So Paul is saying after coming from a marriage that was so tiring, that was so hard, that was so burdensome, Why would you want to go back to it? Why would you want to go back to a marriage that demanded all these things of you? Why would you want to go back to living a life under sin when you've encountered the love and grace of God through Jesus? Okay, you can look at the ball again now. All right, Blake stole my illustration at the start, but anyway, Um, so when I said, don't look at the ball, there was something inside you that automatically wanted to look at the ball, right? Um, I don't know what it is, but when we're told not to do something, we want to look at it straight away. If that ball was just lying on the stage there, I bet you none of you guys would have probably paid attention to it if you could see it. But now that I told you don't look at the ball, you wanted to look at it. Uh, Now, I know that doesn't work for all things. Like, Like when like, Holly tries reverse psychology on me sometimes, right? She's like, don't eat KFC. And that never works. There's a fat chance if someone tells me not to eat KFC, that I'm not going to eat it again. But for most things, when someone tells us not to do something, there's something in us, there's this urge inside us that wants to fight against that, and we want to do it. We want to make our own decisions. We want to know why can't we do that thing. Uh, and in the previous chapters, we've seen Paul portray the law of God in somewhat of a negative light, all right? If we remember back to some of the verses in Romans, uh, in chapter five, he says, the law came along to multiply trespasses. Chapter six, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. And then chapter seven, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Uh, So coming to uh, the remaining verses of chapter 7, a question arises, right? Now that we're under grace, now that we know that we're not saved by obeying the law, what do we then do with the law? Do we just throw it away? If sin is multiplied by the law, is the law evil? And that's what Paul's asking in verse 1. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? And the short answer is no. Uh, So let me pray, and that's it for today. Uh, I know some of you wish that was happening, but anyway, I'm going to keep going. There's a longer answer. Um, The short answer is no, but what Paul wants us to get from this is that the law reveals our sinful nature uh, and its war against us with our new identity in Christ. So these remaining verses, we're going to try and unpack that in two points. Firstly, that we're going to look at what the purpose of the law is. And secondly, the internal struggle. Okay, so what's Paul talking about when he's, he mentions the law in these verses? Now, throughout the Bible, we see that the law are the instructions that God gave his people. Uh, and being created off the world, God has the right to govern his world and set the standards of which we should uh, live by. Now, so any disobedience or actions that contradict his rule deserves punishment. Uh, and in the Old Testament, we see that God rescued his people out of Egypt. Uh, and after rescuing him, they come to Mount Sinai, where he gives them the Ten Commandments uh, and a whole bunch of other laws. Uh, and in a way, when uh, what these laws represented was sort of was God's character. So when people obeyed these laws, they would be a light to the nations around them. By obeying God's laws, the nations around Israel would get a glimpse of what God's character was like. Now, when we get to the New Testament, uh, we see laws or talking about the law coming from another mountain where Jesus is at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And what Jesus points out here is that the laws given in the Old Testament, they weren't just boxes that you needed to tick and sort of say, "Yep, I've done this. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. Uh, What Jesus is saying is that these laws are actually pointing to a much higher standard, to to a perfect um, moral life. So the example is in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you, you would have heard that it's, it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. See, Jesus points to this one example uh, and shows us that God's law sets a high standard, a standard that is impossible for any of us to meet. So you can see that Paul needs to defend the law. The law comes from God, so how can something that comes from God be evil? Jesus upholds the law. How can it be sinful? Because if the law was sinful, if it was evil, that means that God is evil, that somehow he is sinful. And if God is evil, if God is sinful, how can then we trust anything that he says? And the whole message of the gospel, what we've heard so far, crumbles all the way. Let's go into our first point. What's the purpose of the law? Well, the law convicts us of sin. The law came from God, and if you look at verse 12, Paul says that the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. There's nothing wrong with the law of God, but we do need to understand what the law is for. And firstly, what Paul shows us is that it defines sin for us. Paul says, For I would not have known what coveting was, if the law had not said, "You shall not covet," see so what Paul is saying—that the very concept of envy of coveting is outlined by the law. Without this standard, those feelings that Paul would have had inside him, that desired to have what others had, he wouldn't have known that it's sinful. But now that God's law defined it as sinful, Paul now sees that as sin. All right. So I'll try and illustrate it for us. Um, I had an assignment to do last week for college, and that means heaps of procrastination for me because I am the worst at procrastinating. So I ended up going on YouTube and watching Meanless videos. Uh, But one of the ones I was watching were the um, auditions for X Factor, right? Just watching all the people that think they can make it. Uh, And it's pretty funny watching. They really think they have uh, some sort of talent to make it on X Factor. Uh, So just going to watch a quick video uh, and check this out.
0: Um, Good. and I'm i not really <coughs> different from everyone else in the charts today mm. so got style but if, it was, if we had to say one it would probably be like Pete, Diddy and I'm sure okay. but it sounds, on his things on his own he sounds a bit like as well right. so okay. Pete, Diddy oh, sure. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. i guys you think you can win? what happens when you win? what's the next stage? <laughs> Okay, okay, Yeah. Okay, um. Mm. Whoa, 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 mystery, girl. your body comes to mind. Come on, move your body. Come on, move your body. Yeah. <laughs> I stop and stay at like you walking on the shore. I try to concentrate but mind wants to make some work, though. I try to stay at you take me off my body and kill me when I get you. don't look so bad
1: no not you
0: just leave me oh. oh. not like yeah. mm. that I love you <laughs> not <laughs> It's
1: just gone. Oh, guys, come on. Come on. Cool. So if you don't know P, Diddy, and Usher, they're black. So I found that really funny that they were trying to do that. Um, but uh, what we see is that these guys actually thought they had uh, what it took to win the X Factor. Uh, but when they face the judges, they exposed. they're exposed. They face the harsh reality that they're terrible at singing. Um, And so, in a similar way, when we come to the law, when the law judges us, we're met with the harsh reality that we too are sinful, that we can't meet God's standards. We may think that we have what it takes to obey the law, but then when we see what's required for eternal life, we miss the mark by a long way. Our sinfulness is exposed, and we end up looking like those two guys. The law convicts us of sin. And secondly, it shows us that when God's commands come to us, it stirs up and aggravates the sin within our hearts, showing us not only what it means to be sinful, but that the law shows us sin actually resides within us. And we can see that in verse 8. Paul says, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. When we're met by the law, the sin within us is aggravated. When I told you not to look at the ball, straight away there's something inside you that wanted to look at it. When you see a sign that says don't touch wet paint, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to touch the wet paint. This might just be me, but um, our college lately, they have put down new turf and there's a sign there that says don't walk on the grass. And that sign's been there for a while now, so what do I think? Uh, The grass is probably fine, even though the sign's still up, so I walked across the grass. But Normally when I go to college, I never walk down that path anyway. I go down a different path on the concrete to class. But just because that sign was there, something in me wants to do it, right? There's something in us that wants to rebel against God's law or against any law. And you see Paul pointing this out. God's law, which is good, but yet it brings out this perversity, this stubbornness in us, right? The desire that every human being has. The desire to do something wrong for no other reason than because it's forbidden. We get a kick out of doing something that's wrong. Before we knew something was wrong, there may have been like a very little urge to do it. But as soon as we hear a command from God, that sin is aggravated within us. And this insight gives us, the insight to this law, gives us the characteristics of sin and helps us to understand what truly is at the heart of sin. See, when we desire something that's not ours, when we, you know, maybe swear out of anger or that we lust after someone else, um, there's something deeper on going on inside us other than just anger or greed or lust. Ultimately, the motive of sin is for us to play God. So we have a deep desire to be in charge of the world around us and in charge of our lives. We want to be sovereign. And so anything that God commands us to do from His word is an attack on our desire to be in absolute control. It reminds us that we aren't God and it prevents us from having control in living life the way that we want to live. So if you've ever been rebuked before or you know if someone's pointed out something in your life that you know you might have said or done, uh, or if you've heard something from a sermon that you felt challenged by, Isn't there a part of you inside that says, well, who are you to tell me what to do? Why do I have to listen to what you're saying? See, sin hates to be told what to do. Sin desires to be God. If you think back to the first temptation uh, in Genesis, what does the serpent say to Eve? You will be like God. It was the heart of the first sin, and it's also the heart of all of our sin. Therefore, since the heart of sin is the desire to play God, every law that we come across will stir sin up in us. (coughs) So think about your life at the moment. Where is God's law? Where is his word stirring up the sin within you, wanting to rebel against what he says? Where in your life is God's word pointing out that you are still fighting to play God, that you don't want him to have control over, over your life? or over a certain area of your life. Paul's point is that the law can't save us. That was never its purpose, and it never could be its purpose. The law was given to sinners. Rather, the purpose of the law shows us that we need to be saved. It reveals our sinful nature. It, tells us that we're, it shows us that we're sinners. And unless the law does its work, we'll never see the need to be saved. We'll never see the need to look at Jesus, and we'll be in denial about the fact that, that we are all sinful and to the depth our sin goes to. You see why it's so important for the Bible to be at the center of our lives? I know we hear it again and again and again, but without God's word convicting us of sin, we won't see the need to look at him and we won't have the desire to embrace God's grace, which he freely gives us through Jesus. So secondly... The law convicts us of our sinful desires and aggravates the sin within us, which wants to play God. And now in these remaining verses, Paul sheds light on how the law reveals an internal struggle that goes on with our sinful nature uh, and our new identity in Christ. How our sinful nature exposed by the law wars against this new heart that God has given us. Do you want to read with me from verse 14? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I made out of flesh, sold into sin's, sin's power. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. If you want to jump down to verse 18. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but practice the evil that I do not want to do. These verses give us an insight into Paul's personal experience, an experience that we can all identify with. See, so on one hand, Paul is saying that he has a desire to do what is good. He has a desire to obey God. You know, he's been he's been give, gifted Jesus' righteousness. And so now as a Christian, he can see that what God asks of us is actually good, and he displays a desire to keep it. And likewise, we identify with Paul here. As a Christian, in our heart, we really do want to be obedient to God. We want to read the Bible. We want to stop that nagging sin that keeps on coming up again and again and again. We want to live a life for Him and not for ourselves. We, want, we now understand that God's commands, they're not just rules to stop us from having fun, but they're actually for our own good. See, before being converted, that was impossible. We all lived in rebellion against God, rejecting His authority, uh, and we didn't care about what He had to say. Our sinful nature ruled unchallenged in our lives. But now that uh, we see living in obedience to him is for our good and that it's what we were made for, um, through the law we see the need for God to step in. He's opened up our eyes to the horror that awaits for those who reject him. And by his grace, we're now redeemed by Jesus' blood and he's given us a new heart, a new desire to want to obey him. So you have our sinful nature, it won't go down without a fight. We still feel the struggle between those two natures inside us. It's sort of like we have multiple selves. It's like, you know, in those um, cartoon movies where you see the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. You know, the devil tells the person, you know, do whatever you want to do. Don't worry about the consequences. You're in charge. And the angel says, nah, think more about what you want to do here. Right? Maybe you shouldn't do that. Uh, And it's a similar sort of thing happening in us. uh, But there is a difference as well, though. As a Christian, there's no confusion in who who our identity is in. There's no confusion who we should follow. Even though there is a struggle within our natures, our identity is now in Christ. We delight in his word. We want to be obedient to God. We want to reflect his character. We want to submit to his word. Yet at the same time, the corruption of sin remains in us. It's like a hurt animal that is angry and won't go down without a fight. It wars against this transformed desire in us to want to be obedient to God. Yet even though sin still lingers in us, again, it's no longer our identity. Our identity is in Christ. Sin no longer controls our lives or our personalities. But what Paul is saying, it still can lead us to disobey God. So even though we have a new identity, even though we want to love and delight in God's law, our earthly bodies, we still struggle to fully obey God's command. This law shows us the internal struggle going on inside us. And understanding this internal struggle brings both comfort and warning. Firstly, there's a strange comfort knowing that we struggle with sin. Right? It's actually a good sign. It's a sign that, something has changed within us, that we have a new heart, a sign that we're alive in Christ. Because before, it was impossible to want to be obedient to God. God had to work in us first in order for us to want to be obedient to Him. Without Him giving us a new heart and desire to be obedient with Him, we wouldn't have this struggle within us. So the encouraging thing is that when we struggle with sin, keep struggling. It's a sign that you're alive and that you're not dead to sin anymore. Don't give up and don't give in to sin. See, there will be wins and there will be losses. But remember, when we stumble, we're saved by Jesus' righteousness and not our own. Jesus says, get up and do it again. It's all good. I've finished it. I've paid for it all. But secondly, there's a warning that no one ever gets so advanced in their Christian life that they will never struggle with sin. I mean, we're talking about Paul here, right? Under Jesus in the New Testament, he's the guy that's so admiring. He clearly demonstrated from going, uh, from living one life and then turning it around another way and following for following Jesus, right? Um, but we see that even Paul struggled with this warring natures within him. It's important for us to struggle with our sinful nature uh, because it shows that we're alive. And if there's no struggle, if there's... If we just see ourselves as being good Christians, um, an alarm bell should go off in your mind. There may be a possibility that you've, you're not looking at Jesus and you've started looking back and trusting in what you're doing. You're setting your own standards on how you should approach the approach God uh, and you ignore the law, the fact that it is impossible to approach God on our own terms. On the other hand, if you don't struggle with sin, uh, if we just go live in life as we please... Another warning bell should go off again. It raises the question, are you saved at all? Because we live in a world that is really, 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 really attractive to our sinful nature. And the reality is that at times, we're going to find it hard to be obedient to God and do what he wants us to do. But if the thought, well, what would God say about this never comes up in your life? Again, it may be a warning bell that you're still headed towards the road to destruction. That there has been no change in you because there's no desire for you to be obedient to God. The more that we mature in our walk with God, the more discerning we will get. The more that we'll recognize the sinful nature remaining within us. The more like Jesus we become, the more we actually see how far we are from ever being like him. The internal struggle that goes on within us is a sign that we are alive in Christ. And if we view ourselves as being over sin, if we don't struggle with it, then we're just deceiving ourselves. And in conclusion, at the end of the chapter, we can see this agony that this internal struggle is causing Paul. We can identify with his frustration. In verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Our body with the sin that still remains in our flesh is frustrating. When we're truly saved, we long to be relieved from this body. Uh, and no longer sin and freely obey God. So only when our hearts are are really, truly frustrated with sin can we know the hope and freedom of looking away from ourselves and turning to the grace of God and what he's done for us in Christ. Without the law pointing out our sin and our internal struggle, we'll never truly appreciate the gospel. We'll never truly appreciate the gift of righteousness. See, by his own efforts, Paul knew that he would fail. Uh, And so the last verse, verse 25, brings us back to what we've been hearing in Romans and what we're going to continue hearing in Romans. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, there's no hope in ourselves for salvation, nor our obedience. All we are and all we ever do will deserve judgment. Like Paul, for our salvation, we can only look to Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. For our hope for eternal life, we can only rest in God's righteousness and not our own. And for ongoing obedience and real change in our lives, we can't rely on our own efforts, but only through the work of God's spirit to let him transform our lives and our relationships with others. See, the law points out that we are wretched. It reveals our sinful nature and its warfare against our new identity in Christ. But praise be to God through, through his son, who's rescued us and through his Holy Spirit, is changing us, so that we can join him forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that Paul points out so clearly that your word isn't or your laws aren't evil, that they're not sinful, but they're there to point us to you. Uh, Please help us to struggle with the sin in our lives and not give into it. Uh, And Lord, if there is no struggle in our life with sin, please show us why and please help us. um, Yeah, if we aren't under your protection at the moment, please help us to... Uh, submit to your rule. Amen. Uh, i